welcome to the Dad Strength Podcast, helping you take care of yourself so that you can be present for your people. The Dad Strength Podcast is an Unlearning Network production. My name is Jeff Gervitz, and I have learned an awful lot from some great mentors. And one of my very first, back when I opened my personal training facility up in 2008, was a guy named Mike Boyle. Now, small businesses have kind of a short half-life. By the most recent data I've looked at, only about a third make it past the decade mark. And I thought I was kind of fancy for doing that, but Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning has been rolling since 1996. And they are leaders. They've spun out a number of resources and certifications, and they lead from within the industry. But Mike has more of a pedigree than that. He was the head strength and conditioning coach at Boston University for 15 years. He also served as the strength and conditioning coach for the Boston Bruins from 1991 to 1999. He helped build their their thuggish appeal at that time. He was the strength and conditioning coach for the U.S. women's Olympic ice hockey team, and that was for two golds and a silver medal, as well as for a world championship season with the Boston Red Sox. He's a father of two and really just too damn busy for nonsense. And even though Mike and I don't speak very often, I have always felt like he's been here for me. So when I reached out to him about bringing him on the podcast to catch up, he graciously said yes and was quick to schedule a time with me. He's been influential for me in a ton of ways, and I'm excited to have him on. In this interview, we talk about the strength and conditioning industry. We talk about trends and patterns that tend to repeat. We talk about functional training and how you can apply it to your workouts. And we talk about raising young athletes. Before we begin, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Othership. You can visit Othership at othership.us. It's a guided breath work app. Sessions can wake you up, calm you down, and otherwise get you into the state of mind you need. I often use Othership to transition into uh, a relaxed evening and, and great sleep. They are related, trust me. Uh, but I will also pull it out. If I am feeling kind of frustrated or overwhelmed, um, I know that I can move around or I can use other ship and often I do them at the same time um, to bring me back into a centered state of mind. You know, I'll be the first to tell you that exercise can do this for you. Meditation, of course, can do this for you. Othership is another powerful tool. Uh, breath work integrated with ongoing uh, feedback. There's music, there's coaching. If you happen to live in Toronto, they also have an incredible physical facility where you can do guided breath work in a sauna led by a European trained sauna master and then go and jump into a cold plunge. I have tried it out and I felt amazing afterwards. So I know you always have to kind of take it with a grain of salt when anything's advertised to you. You certainly should. I'll just say that anything that we have on the Dad Strength podcast, and that includes Othership, is something that I personally like and believe in. So um, all I would suggest here is giving it a try. You can check it out for seven days for free by going to othership.us. But I've got a great interview to get to with Mike Boyle. So let's get into it. I'm ready. You know me. I can. I have no trouble talking. Maybe I'll just get you to introduce yourself first. I always say I'm a Boston-based strength and conditioning coach. I guess that's the easiest way to describe myself. But uh, I'm a writer. I'm a speaker. And I guess most importantly here, I'm a husband and a father. I've got two kids who are now 17 and 22. So I, um, 
I guess in the in the dad strength world, I have some skin in the game. Indeed. Okay. So once upon a time, there was a skinny guy uh, bouncing around over hurdles doing plyometrics on an old VHS tape. And this would have been what? Mid eighties? Yeah, probably early nineties, actually. Pro- if I'm, if I'm guessing, I'd say early nineties. Okay. Um, can you walk me from there to here? Yeah, it's funny. There's a lot of, I think, kind of, I don't know, facets, dimensions to that process in terms of moving from coach to educator. I think at that point I was, I had made that mental distinction that, Hey, I I would like to get my information out to other people. And so I started to make these VHS tapes. The one you saw was called explosive power development for hockey. I have, I honestly think it was spurred by looking at like little magazine ads where people would be advertising these, you know, VHS tapes on different subjects, you know, kind of like buying the, you know, the, the weeder barbell course or something out of, uh, you know, out of a magazine when I was a kid. And I literally made these tapes. I got, I had a, my, one of my first interns was a kid who had a little bit of tech savvy and could get a uh, camcorder at that time to turn on and off and be able to video and, and edit and do all that stuff. And we put together some VHS tapes and started to sell them. And I literally, I put them in envelopes myself. I took them to the post office and I sold them. I would say mostly to hockey parents who were interested in what we were doing in the hockey world at that time. And then, uh, you know, I kept coaching obviously and, and expanding in the coaching world at Boston university. And I got involved in combine training. There was just a lot of stuff going on at the same time, but at that time also performed better uh, came to a seminar that we actually had put the seminar on the Massachusetts uh, branch of the NSCA decided to put on the mass state seminar. And we had a really successful seminar and Chris Poria from perform better start and thought, wow, I think that education is a really good way to sell equipment. If you don't know what the hell Mike is talking about, that's okay. Uh, it's pretty uh, inside baseball for this stuff. But the NSCA is one of the certifying organizations for personal trainers and strength coaches. It's the National Strength and Conditioning Association. They're fairly well respected and perform better, as you probably figured out, sells equipment. Uh, but what they were really innovative with was combining education you know, as you're learning about here, with selling stuff. So it's something. Uh, Back to Mike. And so he said, I'd like to do these seminars all around the country and sponsor them. And the funny thing is, first year I said I couldn't do it because I wouldn't travel. I said, I can't be traveling around. I'm a college strength coach. I can't be leaving five weekends a year to go to, you know, Chicago and LA and these places. And that next year, I was so jealous that I wasn't speaking. I'm looking at these people thinking this was kind of my idea. I got this thing rolling and now I'm not involved. So in year two, I jumped back in. We started making more VHS tapes for them and VHS tapes became DVDs and human kinetics at some point showed up. I can never remember Ed's last name, but Ed was what's called an acquisitions editor. And an acquisitions editor is someone who tries to um, entice somebody to write a book. So Ed called me up and said, Hey, we'd like you to write a book on functional training. And I said, I don't know what functional training is. So I'm not sure I'd be the right guy to write the book. And his Ed Burke actually was his name. And Ed said, well, we think what you're doing is functional training. So we just want you to write a book. We're going to call the book functional training for sports. And I said, so I'll just write the book and you're going to put a, the title on it, functional training for sports. And he was like, yeah, that's kind of what we're going to do. 
So I became a functional training guy and it never intended to be, you know, I kind of, then I get kind of mixed up with like this, you know, I always said Richard Simmons, Bosu ball, you know, headband kind of world that that's what people think I am. You know, they think we're like standing on exercise balls and jumping around with bands and it was nothing like that. So. Yeah, it's it's sort of a uh, a term that comes with a lot of baggage in the strength and conditioning world. So um, maybe you can unpack that. What like what do people think functional training is, and kind of where has that gone? And and actually, this is this is cool for me to know because I had always sort of assumed you were you were in there with the um, the terminology, but somebody else had come up with this. Yes, um, so to me, and that's what was funny. They they were asking, okay, you know, write a write an introduction, write a definition, write. And I remember writing that functional function is purpose. If I look at what an object's function is, what's its purpose? What do you use it for? So to me, the idea of functional training was purposeful training. And then I took that a step further and I said, well, what functional training really is, is the application of what we now know about functional anatomy to training. Because suddenly I was getting exposed to guys like uh, you know, Gary Gray and Mike Clark and all these people who were talking about function and how the body really worked. And I remember being, um, I flabbergasted is probably the right word. I remember listening to Gary Gray say, you know, that muscles just do two things. They act eccentrically to decelerate flexion and they act concentrically to accelerate extension. And he's like, there's no knee extensors and no plantar flexors and no dorsiflexors. And, and I, and it, you know, your initial reaction is to sit there and think like, this guy's out of his mind. What's he talking about? All right, hold up. This got really technical really fast. So let me just take a moment here to break this down because in spite of all the vocabulary, it's pretty straightforward. You know, we tend to look at an anatomy book and just take it at face value, but that's not how your brain works and okay joints either flex or extend so think about a bicep curl you're bringing your fist toward your shoulder your biceps are flexing it's actually the elbow that's flexing the muscles are shortening they cross the elbow not everybody knows that uh the muscles of the bicep cross the elbow so that when they shorten they impact the joint so that is flexion if we were straightening the arm that's extension and so think about an athletic movement like a jump your brain isn't going, okay, and the quadriceps, uh, you know, the rectus femoris muscle here does this, and, and your vastus lateralis does this. That's it, probably not. You know, the brain likes efficiency. The nervous system likes efficiency. So when we extend, when we jump, we are exploding. We're moving explosively into a big extended position. We're spreading out. And when we land, we have to decelerate into flexion so we don't just collapse that's it. And so, you know what this reminds me of? There's a uh, Bruce Lee quote. Before I learned the art, a punch was just a punch and a kick was just a kick. After I learned the art, a punch was no longer a punch. A kick was no longer a kick. Now that I understand the art, a punch is just a punch and a kick is just a kick. So yeah, it's this process of sometimes at first glance, things are simple and we have to go through this process of learning before we can then unlearn and get down to the essence of of what this is so yeah you can see why this uh this story reminded me of of the quote let's get back to mike here he's saying that my you know you mean my college anatomy professor didn't really understand how the muscles worked but as i stood there and thought about running jumping it, i I would say it was a like a five minute epiphany where your initial reaction is you're like, this guy's out of his mind. 
And then you're kind of going, hmm, this makes absolutely perfect sense, actually. And so that to me was the birth in my mind of the belief in functional training. Like, wait a second, there is a way, you know, this closed chain, feet on the ground, pushing against things. This is the way the world works. And we know that, but we don't do it. So, you know, we go in the gym and we use machines and we even going in the gym and doing things two legs at a time. I mean, two legs at a time. And I've been banging this drum for God knows how many years now, but it makes no sense. And it's actually gotten to the point where I think it's neurologically confusing. I think it makes people less athletic. The more, the more you do really heavy bilateral training, the less athletic you become. If you look at world-class powerlifters, you do not think athletic. You do not look at that person and think, wow, I bet that person could participate in any number of other pursuits and perform really well at that. You look at them and think, that is a very well-made machine to bilaterally move load. So, I mean, the whole functional training to me, it, you know, we started describing it's training that makes sense. Look at what you're going to do in the real world and then try to do things in training that are, I don't want to say mimic it, but are relatively specific to the task. So, and this would be, you know, to contrast from say, looking at an anatomy book with these neatly, um, compartmentalized muscles in different colors, very clearly delineated and trying to go muscle by muscle. Is, is this sort of the response to that? Yes, exactly. That's exactly what it is. And it's one of those, I mean, you know, I remember later on, someone said there's a really big difference between dead person anatomy and live person anatomy. So it, it's a, it's a real thought process shift for people. And I think because again, and I've said this numerous times, generally speaking, fitness people did not give up their Mensa membership to open a gym. So when you're trying to get people to understand that the way they've trained their whole life, that, you know, back, you know, legs back and buys is maybe not the way to do it. Uh, that's really difficult. And when you start explaining something, well, that's not how your body really works. I, I find a lot of times I'm arguing with people who are really unequipped to argue back, but that doesn't stop them. <laughs> Yeah, well, <laughs> that's par for the course. But okay, so let's say um, I'm listening to this. I'm not a, a strength and conditioning coach. I'm just a guy trying to be in good shape. What what can I like? What can I take from this concept and actually apply to my uh, to my workouts? I think the biggest thing you can take from your concept is just don't um, you know don't don't do stupid things because someone else told you it was a good idea. Because that's a lot of what we do in fitness. It's the life serial thing, right? you know, Mikey likes it, you know, it's, it's some stuff that's supposed to be good for you. So people will see things like, you know, I can give you, you know, burpees, dips, back squats. Like there's a lot of exercises that, you, that, that we commonly accept as good that I might look at and say, Hey, there's better choices out there that you could make. I mean, even training by body part, you know, you look at, I, I can't believe that people still go to the gym and train by body part. Whenever I see someone say, Oh, it's leg day. I'm just, I mean, I have this head scratching moment of it's leg day. Wow. And I think what a dad, you know, dad podcast, right. Could take from it is, Hey, go do two to three total body strength workouts a week at the gym in those workouts, do a pulling exercise, a pushing exercise and a unilateral type of squat and a unilateral type of deadlift. That would be my advice for these people. 
Okay, we're hitting you with vocabulary again. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put some examples of these exercises into the show notes so that you can hit the ground running and run some experiments in your own workouts. Do some basic core exercises. Just, you know, get rid of your sit-ups and crunches and your inclined slant board. I mean, these things are all still out there, which is just, you know, like we live in our own little bubble worlds of our own facilities. But then you go to a normal gym and you look and see, oh my God, like there's a guy over there doing like inclined sit-ups or, you know, he just did a thousand guy. I did a thousand crunches, you know, I'm going to get abs and you're just like, and there's just, well, there's so much um, misinformation. There's probably, I would say bad information um, outstrips good information, probably in line with the Pareto principle like 80% bad, 20% good. And it might even be 90, 10 in terms of fitness. I am always taken aback, like you said, by how much of this information is just an artifact. It got handed from one person to another person to another person um, and unquestioned. And I have beginners all the time who will ask me about, you know, the right body parts split. And I'm like, but why? It's, it's just not, uh, it's not practical. It doesn't, work very well. It's, um, and it's, it's certainly not efficient. Yeah, no, it's, it's not. And, but again, you know, we are, um, you know, shoveling shit against the tides sometimes because there's so much more of this stuff coming back at us. It's been now, now we're fighting social media. We're fighting influencers. We're fighting, you know, the CrossFit games. We're fighting, you know, this, there's people are overwhelmed with just junk and they can't, um, they can't filter out the bad from the good. They don't have the capability to do that. But the good thing, I would say, that's why places like yours and mine are thriving. Because we are these islands of sanity in an insane world. And when somebody gets there, they're, they almost look around like, oh my God, you know, I didn't know this place existed. I didn't like this. And people will have that again, that they'll have their epiphany of when you explain it, it makes so much sense. Uh, when I was at your facility, I remember you kind of, um, I don't know, we were, we're standing kind of leaning against the squat rack and you're like, you know, I think I'm going to stop squatting. Like, I think I'm going to stop my athletes squat. I, I, and you were like, I, I haven't had the guts to pull the trigger yet, but uh, I'm going to take that off. And not, not far after, uh, there was much, uh, uh, chaos after you kind of dropped that. You want to <laughs> take us back to that one? Yeah, that was, I think you're right. Then you said 2008, because I think the death of squatting thing was 2009. And it's, it's, again, it's really interesting how kind of social media constructs your life because we did a seminar and I think it was functional strength coach three. And, and I brought up this idea that we think we have a way to evaluate unilateral strength so we don't feel the need to do things like front squat and back squat testing anymore. And we're not going to do those lifts anymore. And I said that when I really look at squatting, I think that squatting, the failure point of squatting is somebody's back. And I made the point of saying, you know, when, when you're like, I was a competitive powerlifter. So, I mean, I, again, skin in the game, I've been in powerlifting meets. I've, I've done what I'm saying not to do. And when you look at that, you say to people, wow, when I watched squats, it was very, very rare that I watched like an upright Olympic style squat where somebody drove up and their legs just failed and they went down through the bottom. Mm -hmm. 
what you always saw was this tilting, like ass up, head forward. Usually if you saw bars dumped, they were dumped forward. Or if you saw really bad squats, you know, it was something that, that looked more like a good morning than a squat. And what I started to realize was that the back is the weak link here. The back is where things fail. The legs actually got a lot of juice left in them, but the back gives out. And then, of course, the, the squatting people said, well, you just do more back training, you know, do more reverse hypers and you'll have a stronger back and you'll, you know, and it's like, that's not the point. As I said, the point is that the back, and this is what I said in the clip, is a bad transducer. It's a bad mechanism to transfer force through to the bar. And when you suddenly go unilateral, the legs have way more to give because they're not being limited by the load on the top. So, you know, you've got, you're trying to move 500 pounds with two legs. You can actually move 250 pounds very, very easily with one leg. And that's what we saw as we started to kind of move into this experimental world. And that's why now you see the popularity of these like Hatfield bar, you know, safety bar squats and safety bar split squats and all these things. It's like people are agreeing, but they're not. It's almost like they don't want to say it. Well, I'm not going to say it out loud that, that we're not squatting. I have a call actually after this with a guy who's saying that the Buffalo Bills didn't squat all year and he wants to know why. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I also know that they said the Patriots squats are the most important thing that they do. Now, I'm, I'm a New England guy, but Buffalo trounced the Patriots at the end of the, you know, at the end of the year. And, you know, is that a victory for, you know, unilateral exercise over bilateral exercise? I don't know, but it's, it's an interesting aside as, as you look. And again, I just think there's again, it's 80, 20, 90, 10 intelligent people in our field who are truly analytical and who will look at things without their own bias. I don't know if you've been following my Twitter, my programming 101 series on Twitter, but just trying to get people to understand, like, it's not about what you like. It's not about, you know, what you were raised on. I was having a conversation last night. I was raised on overcooked meat because my father was an Irishman who liked everything burned to death. I never knew that, you know, that steak was not similar to shoe leather until I went to college. But when I look at it now, you know, should I force everyone to eat well done steak? Because that was the way I was brought up. And that's sort of how our, our training philosophy is. It is very much influenced by like the person who taught me said, this is how you do it. And I don't think I don't deviate. I just continue to espouse that, that party line and, and push people along that way. We know all these things. We know that loading is going to be really beneficial, but then the, this sort of, um, the logic train chugs along that, well, then the more loading we do, the better it is. And it's like, no, that's, that's where things get off the rails a little bit in terms of, you know, yes, we want to stress somebody's heart, but we're not going to say the more cardiac stress we can put them under, the better it is we realize that loading is going to be good for their joints. It's going to be nutritive for their joints. But I don't think that squatting a thousand pounds is good for your joints. And maybe I'm yeah. wrong, but, you know, and then, you know, then, then we get into the confounding variable of steroid, right? Because when we look at some of this, you know, some of these guys are dying really young. And are they dying really young because they're big and strong and because they lifted a lot of weights or are they dying really young because they messed with the androgens in their system? And that has, you know, it, it goes back. I, I love, I have my old commercial references, you know, it's not nice to fool mother nature. That was another great, uh, 
commercial when I was a kid growing up. And I mean, the reality is if we're smart, we can keep the wolf from the door for a really long time. If you go to my gym, you go to MBSC, you see lots of healthy looking older people, but they're healthy looking older people because we're making choices for them and helping them make choices for themselves about what exercises. And this was the term I used on Twitter the other day. What exercise is the most joint friendly exercise that they can do? Cause it's amazing how many you know, old guys there out there that you see, you know, well, I go to the gym, you know, and I got my liniment and I rub it on my shoulders <laughs> and you know what I mean? And you're like, or maybe we could just try to find some exercises that you could do that make, don't make your shoulders hurt. Like that they've, might be. They've been doing, those guys have been doing the exact same workout for 20 years, by the way. Exactly. They, yeah. The exact same workout. The same way. And, you know, you look at most of them and, and they're an orthopedic disaster, but they just, you know, they're the, um, they are the walking definition of insanity, right? Doing so, the same thing over and over again and expecting the result to change. So talk to me about how to train in a way that, you know, because we can't eliminate risk, but we can minimize risk. How do we minimize the risk of, um, of joint issues? And well, really terrifying. simple stuff. One, I always say dumbbells over barbells, right? Because if we think about barbell, a barbell, the bar path is predetermined by the bar. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, you can, you can maybe do some things with your elbow, but basically when you decide to press with a bar, you've, determined, you know, what your grip width is going to be, what the bar path is going to be. If I give you dumbbells, you may find the most shoulder, shoulder friendly range of motion. You may suddenly realize, Hey, there's a little rotational component to this thing. And when I use that, I'm pain-free, you know, we use our functional trainers for pulling. We don't pull with bars. Same reason. If I do a pull down, lat pull down with a straight bar, again, I've predetermined the path of the bar and therefore the path of my shoulders. If I give somebody the two handles on my functional trainer, I can now move from internal rotation to external rotation as I pull. Um, You know, squatting, I can do a one leg squat. There's some great research that I've been banging the drum for this Alex Nateri. Alex Nateri is an Australian rules football strength coach. And he did some force plate studies when he was at Aspire Academy in uh, Qatar uh, and basically said that a one leg squat is equivalent to a bodyweight squat in terms of load. So if, if for you, you know, let's just say Jeff weighs, you know, 180 pounds, you either have the choice today if you can do one leg squats and get 180 pound load, or you can put 180 pounds on your cervical thoracic junction and do squats and get a bodyweight load. Mm-hmm. But they're identical loads. And the crazy thing is double bodyweight load. Like if you get to the point where you can one leg squat with a load equivalent to one times body weight, you are now a triple body weight squatter. So you, you know, you being able to somehow hold 180 pounds in a one leg squat, sandbags, chains, whatever it was, would be the equivalent of you doing 480 pounds in a back squat. And, you know, I talk about orthopedic cost. I mean, there's an orthopedic cost to a 400 pound bar being on your cervical thoracic junction. I don't care what anybody says. You know, the same thing people are arguing, well, disc compression is good. Well, disc compression might be okay. It might be beneficial. But I don't think extremes of disc compression, you know, trying to jam yourself into an exaggerated lordotic position in order to balance a bar on your back probably isn't really good long term. So I think there's just a lot of ways that we can choose to load in what I classify as a more joint friendly manner. 
And to have that training have what I would refer to as a lower orthopedic cost. I want to lower the orthopedic cost of exercise. And I want to raise the orthopedic benefit. And I think you can do that with things like unilateral handles, dumbbells, unilateral, um, you know, lower body work, whether it's one leg straight leg deadlift or split squat variations or things like that, or, or true one leg squats. Um, and that's what we do with our clients. I mean, you would come in and you would not see any of our adult clients. We have a few who deadlift like with a, you know, trap bar deadlift, but the majority of our adult clients would be doing, you know, once they can, we always say once they can kettlebell deadlift the heaviest kettlebell, which for us is like 132 pounds. I forget what it is, 60K or something like that. Then it's, it's all unilateral from there on. Same thing with squatting. You know, we may goblet squat somebody up to, you know, maybe 50% of body weight. And then from there, it's all unilateral. So it's, it's all about making the choices that are going to be best long-term for your body. And if you look like split squat, and this is what you should look into this Alex and Terry research. What they actually said is split squat, I think is 68% of your weight is on the front foot. And rear foot elevated split squat is like 84% or something like that on your front foot. Step up is 50-50. And what they did is they did all these with force plates. Mm -hmm. So they just had people do all these exercises on a force plate and compared them. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's super interesting because it clearly, clearly it's the, it's the biggest validation I have seen for what we've been doing for a really long time. It's just Alex put numbers to it. Mm -hmm. And the cool thing is he did it in kilograms, which makes it really easy for people to understand because when you start getting into math, like one of the things that he, you know, this, so th this is the great part of his research. And have you read Range? I don't know if you've read Range, David Epstein's Yeah, book. I know the book, yeah. So one of the things Range talks about, Epstein talks about in Range is what he calls undiscovered connections. And he has this idea that there's undiscovered connections of things that we don't realize. And when the tear is trying to do this study, one of the things he's trying to figure out is what does the torso weigh? Like, you know, from your ass up, what do you weigh? Because he's got to have that calculation in order to then be able to look at one leg squat and figure out, okay, what is the way, you know, what, how much weight are you actually managing in a one leg squat? Mm -hmm. And he goes to a study in 1955 study on pilots because they're trying to figure out what the weight is in the seat of a plane. And so they basically calculate out that the, the torso, you know, arms, head, whatever, you know, trunk is 68% of your body weight on average, the pilots that they studied. So that means that your legs are 32% of your body weight. That means that your one leg is 16% of your body weight. So what that means is that when you do a one leg squat, you're handling 84% of your body weight. Just math. I mean, and that's the cool thing about it. That's just math. And that's where he, but then he does the description, which makes it really easy. A hundred kilo man doing a one leg squat has 84 kilos on each leg a hundred kilo man doing a hundred kilo back squat also has 84 kilos on each, on each leg, because now he's got the hundred kilos on his back plus the 68 kilos of his torso being moved by the two legs. Mm -hmm. 168 divided by two is 84. Like it's like, so you look at the math and you're like, okay, this is really easy metric math. You know, we're dealing in uh, hundreds, not in pounds and we're dealing in tens. So yeah, it's, it's people forget. Stuff people forget to include the body 
right there. Right. Um, I pull ups would be body a, body weight. It's like, a, that's not all that bright, but they, and that's what I said. That's why the, the Natera research is really cool. And it's just further reinforced what we are. I mean, I believed I was right before and now I believe I'm right even more wholeheartedly after reading through those studies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, the math, the math checks out. It's, uh, yeah, it does. <laughs> Uh, what, what do you see? So right now, right. And you've been, you've been around long enough. You're, you're not new. Um, you've seen the same trends and kind of fads probably come and go a few times. What is, uh, experiencing a resurgence right now? Well, the new machine is sick. Like, you know, Peloton is the new life cycle. Tonal is the new, you know, curves or whatever, you know, they're, they're just going to, we, we will consistently try to, to one find the best one size fits all machine. We will consistently strive to sell some type of home cardiovascular product that will be better than the previous home cardiovascular product. You know, you look at life cycle, you know, you had the little screen, you know, it's kind of like the difference between, you know, Pac-Man and Mortal Kombat, you know, when you're looking at video game development, now you can sit there on your screen and you can decide, you know, you're going to ride with some beautiful girl through the, you know, the fields of France or something like that versus chasing another, uh, you know, another bike around in a circle on the right. life cycle or whatever it was. And, and, you know, p- people, I mean, Hey, people are always going to try to invent stuff and people are always going to try to sell things. And I'm, that would be a very consistent and persistent theme, uh, probably long after we're gone, you and I. I was just thinking I, I would be more likely to jump on a Peloton if I could actually battle a Mortal Kombat character. Uh, but that's that's just me. And there's there's also this this piece, um, the data piece, where um, having more information always feels sciencier and truthier, um, but is is sometimes misleading. When we think about where we started, we started basically with bodybuilding, powerlifting, and Olympic lifting. Those were the three strength areas from which we all drew our influences, me included. Mm-hmm. But the difference was, you know, bodybuilding was purely an aesthetic thing. You know, how do I look? And again, heavily influenced by steroids. Powerlifting was lift as much weight as you possibly can, heavily influenced by steroids. Olympic lifting was lift as much weight explosively, rapidly as you possibly can, heavily influenced by steroids. So we were all really heavily influenced by steroids, but we didn't know it. You know, when we saw Arnold or we saw the Hulk or whatever the things, you know, we saw the world's strongest man on, you know, on Saturday afternoon on, you know, uh, wide world of sports, you know, those kind of things are on ESPN. We didn't realize that we were being influenced by steroids, but we were, mm-hmm. these are all, you know, we are, we carry that baggage with us forever because we, we weren't smart enough to look and say, I mean, I can remember as a kid looking at muscle magazines and thinking, man, if I work hard, I can look like that. I had no idea that what I was looking at was somebody, you know, I thought I was looking at someone who trained really hard in the gym and ate their protein and, you know, had eggs and took, you know, desiccated liver tablets and do all that stuff. And I'm like, oh, they left out the part about the Diana ball. Like, you know, and, <laughs> and, but you didn't know that. So you were in it. So I think that's, you know, again, watch the CrossFit games, watch anything that you're going to watch and you're probably going to see, um, you know, the same thing. You're going to see that you're influenced uh, by 
by things that you didn't realize were part of the equation. But it's hard to uncouple. Like sometimes people think, okay, um, these guys are taking steroids. So, okay, maybe I won't put on as much muscle, but I can basically do the same stuff. That's not how it works. No, I mean, it's, but again, I, I think because nobody bothered, you know, I, I refer to it in presentations, confounding variable in research, they would call it. Mm-hmm. No one said, oh, by the way, I didn't tell you what else these guys were doing. And, and we were all, I mean, as an, as an industry, we were all massively influenced by this. Yeah. But, you know, not knowing what I saw myself at, you know, as a kid growing up in this era and then realizing that I was training with people who were using steroids and seeing was that I know that steroids work with really simplistic routines because I would watch people do things that I'd be like, that'll never work. And then a month later it had worked. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. You know, why can't I do that? And then I realized that, well, me training naturally, I can't expect my bench press to go up 40 pounds in a month. My bench press might go up 10 or 15 pounds in a year. Mm -hmm. And so I just think in some ways we've all been, uh, we're consistently led astray and that that's in nutrition. You know, it's, it's everywhere. It's in equipment. Uh, Everywhere we go, we are inundated with, with advertising, with marketing. I mean, I just got done watching dope sick on Hulu. And when you see what the Oxycontin people did, what the Sacklers did in, you know, in the name of medicine, in the name of pain relief, uh, I mean, killed, you know, how many thousands of people were forced into drug addiction because, because people in big business lie. I mean, people in big business lie. What? (laughs) And we're not immune to that in the strength and conditioning and or fitness world. You're you're telling me that someone- no longer life life and death, but it's certainly- Yeah, you you know, you're telling me with someone with something to say. I think you you had that in an article, actually. People, uh, that was one of your lessons, like stop learning from people who are paid to sell specific products. It doesn't matter. They're smart. They're often very smart and, and charismatic people. And we've seen over time, you know, if you look again, and I always say to people again, because I'm a bit of a historian, you know, I've lived through like Nautilus and Cybex and so many of these things that ended up, yeah, I don't want to say being scams, but they ended up in situations where they were employing paid experts to make their product um, give a certain appearance. Mm-hmm. And so, sorry, we're probably as far off track. You might have to have a whole nother dad segment here. Sorry. Hey, we'll fix it. We'll fix it in post. No, we're, we're, this is great. Um, I, you know, by the way, desiccated liver, this, so this would have been, <laughs> I think it, it was a thing maybe in late, mid, late eighties, kind of pre creatine and, and, and when it was hard to get protein powder, um, and it's back, it's, uh, yeah. you know, oh <laughs> yeah, there's, oh, that was, those were nasty. I tried that for, I couldn't even smell. I mean, I can remember the stuff we used to take. You know, and again, we took all kinds of crazy supplements. I mean, I was literally, I started lifting probably right about the time that the steroid thing started to become relatively public. Mm-hmm. It was middle seventies and, um, you know, powerlifting was becoming popular and, yeah. and people were beginning to kind of be a little bit more honest about what they were doing. And I can just remember being shocked because we were buying, like I said, you know, desiccated liver and protein powder and, you know, B12. I mean, 
you know, all thinking like, oh, well, this is what, you know, this is what the magazine said. This is what strength and health said. You know, none of those, you know, strength and health or Iron Man or muscle and fitness, the big three at that time, none of them had articles on, oh, by the way, everybody in this magazine is on steroids. We're not telling you that part. Yeah. And as a kid, you know, I'm like, literally, I mean, I can remember honestly being 15 or 16 and waiting you know, going by the newsstand to see like, is the new muscle and fitness out? Is the new Ironman out? Like, can I get a magazine to, to read a little bit more about how I might be able to get stronger? Yeah, but yeah. it's sort of like everybody was, oh, I'm we're withholding a really critical piece of information here from you because that's going to get you to buy a bunch of useless shit that isn't going to help you at all. Not to mention, even the, even the workout routines themselves were often just sort of ghostwritten, had nothing to do with what oh, even these guys were doing. I had a friend who was a ghostwriter. I had a guy that I used to work with who he would show me his article. He'd show me the article and he'd say, okay, I'm going to send this to Muscle and Fitness and it'll come out and it will say like, uh, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger or Boyer Co. or Lou Ferrigno wrote this article. And I was like, no way. But then he showed me one and then he showed me the magazine later and said, look, here it is with this, you know, whatever champion bodybuilder's name put on it. And they, they, all of those companies employed a whole list of these ghostwriters who wrote these articles. And the other purpose of the article was to, you know, sell supplements, sell magazines, whatever it was. And, you know, if they put Mike Boyle on the byline, who's going to buy that? But if they put some, you know, famous bodybuilders name on that article, and I, again, I don't want to get sued because I use the names of certain people, but it wasn't any of them that they said, wrote the article, but the point was they were putting names on articles and who knows if these guys could, you know, what their writing level was, what their intellectual level was. I have no idea, but I know they were employing really smart guys who weren't nearly as big as the guys in the articles. <laughs> right. Article. Yeah. I think, um, quality and, and, uh, and testing varied. Um, okay. Well, let's, let's pivot. Talk to me, talk to me about, um, you know, and, about training kids, about training young people. And I, I know your daughter anyway has been um, uh, super active. I'm, I'm not, I don't know much about your son though. They're, they're both actually really good athletes. Um, training kids is, is another whole animal in the sense that I would strongly advocate you don't train your own kids. Uh, don't coach your own kids. Don't train your own kids. There are certain times when you may be forced into coaching when the kids are really young. I still didn't. I did not like, I never coached soccer. I never did T-ball. I was like, I'm not, I'm not cut out for that. I know myself. I won't be good at it. I do now work with, I worked with my daughter and her friends and my son and his friends in the gym, but I always have someone else with me who is really in charge um, and running the group so that we don't, because it's, you can really set up, um, a lot of great family conflict by trying to interject yourself into every area of your child's life. So I would strongly advocate if you are a fitness professional of some type that you try to provide a really good example for your kids when they initially want to go to the gym, when they're young, you take them, you have fun with them. When they get into their teenage years where they're very tired, like my son, he literally looks at me half the time and is like, I'm so sick of listening to you. Like he's not saying it, but his face is saying, it. Mm -hmm. and he's a wonderful kid. He's a great athlete, but you know, every day is, you know, you know, is your homework in, you know, did, did you get this done? 
you know, did you do this? Did you do that? And then, oh, now I got to go to the gym. And now you're going to be like, okay, you know, this thing going to tell me how much weight I got to do on chin-ups. You know what I mean? It's like, it just creates a very conflicted situation. And I think too many people think, oh, that won't happen to me. I'm going to tell you it will happen to you. Your kid will at some point begin to resent you because of all the other areas of their life that you're in control of, you know, the car, the money, the school, the, all these other things that are going on. And, um, I've been very lucky. Like I said, my daughter is a, is a really good ice hockey player. She's had, I mean, she's on her third college, which is an interesting story, but that, that would take us another podcast, but she's been really successful everywhere she's been. And she's had a really experience. My son is a, is a really good athlete, probably, if he wanted to, could play Division One lacrosse. He's at the point where he doesn't know if he wants to. He thinks I might, you know, because Division One lacrosse now is, you know, rosters of fifty or sixty kids, and most kids aren't going to play till their junior year. And I think he really likes playing, and he's thinking, I think I'd rather maybe go to a Division Two or Division Three school and play sooner, you know. And his goal is to play lacrosse, not to practice it. And I think some kids are so tied up in the Division One thing that they don't think about the the playing versus practicing part. And they don't realize I me mean, that it's one thing like my daughter is, was a full scholarship. It's very well worth pursuing that, particularly in women's ice hockey. They won't have more than, you know, 23, 24 kids on a team. The vast majority of the kids are going to play They they know who the better kids are relatively quickly. And, you know, those kids, uh, you know, play. So she's played. I mean, she sat out very few games in her career and she's gotten most of her college education paid for my son even if he's a division one lacrosse player i mean you know i mean in they don't get full scholarships it's nothing like football or basketball or ice hockey uh and so i'm very comfortable with the idea that if he says hey i want to go play division two or division three because all i want to do is go watch and this is where it's funny these would be the big pieces of advice make your kids like practice by explaining to them how important practice is and making them go. Because what, what I've seen with unsuccessful parents is they put their kids on two or three teams and then they skip all the practices and they take the kids to games and they watch them play games and they do stupid things like, oh, I give him a dollar for every goal he scores or that kind of thing. And then you get a kid who um, likes the reinforcement of games but doesn't like practice. My kids like to practice, they like to train. So that's a, that's a good thing. And then... When you go and watch them play, try to subjugate your ego and tell them that you really love watching them play and not make it based on performance, not make it something that's, I like watching you play when you score. I like watching you play when you're good versus I really like watching you play. I really enjoy, I, I enjoy the fact that I get to go to your games and that I get to watch. Um, and that's not easy. I'll be honest. I've, you know, I've had my, you know, I've yelled at a ref here and there. I've been loud in the stands here and there. You know, I think everybody's going to do those things. But knowing that we're all human and we're all going to be prone to, uh, you know, periods of bad parenting and bad decision making will make those things fewer and further between and probably promote a way better relationship with your kid, which is really what it's about. What you're trying to do is have them do something that's good for them, sports, and have, you know, do something that maybe deepens your, your relationship with them by you going and supporting what it is they're into. 
so I think it's it's amazing. We see it in hockey all the time because I mean, obviously hockey is a big deal here, but people will spend as much money pursuing the scholarship as they do to get the scholarship. Mm-hmm. You know, when you look at the end product, you think, okay, you know, I just spent $250,000 in on hockey over the last, whatever, five years. And I got a scholarship that's worth $250,000. I mean, that's pretty much a zero sum game. You didn't mm-hmm. save money. So, you know, if your goal, you know, if, if you have to spend, like if you said, you know, I'm, I'm going to, uh, you know, I have to invest $250,000 and the return when I'm done will be $250,000. You'd be like, you mean on addition to the 250,000? They'd be like, no, you're going to spend 250,000 at the end, we'll give it back to you. You get a zero. And that's assuming the kid gets right, scholarship. That's, that's a scholarship, which and that's, the vast majority don't. Yeah. And that's assuming no collateral damage. Um, right. for, whether it's like their love of the game or wear and tear on their body or your relationship with them. That's the thing that scared my son's just five. That's the thing that worries me. I'm going to do whatever he's into. I'm into, but I'm, it's the parents that, that worry me that are going to suck the fun right out of it. Right. And that's where, you know, finding good coaches, finding a good sports community. We've been really lucky in the town that we live in that the sports community is very good. And there's a lot of kind of nice, caring parents who coach and you have to figure out what you're kind of what your tolerance is for coaching. Um, I, I don't mind kind of hard, aggressive coaching. I don't mind someone, someone's honest with my kid. Hey, I'm good with that. Uh, you know, be honest with my kid. We had a great, uh, the kids like in lacrosse growing up, they had a great dad who was a hockey player, never played lacrosse, but he educated himself in lacrosse and he would be really honest with the kids. Like he, I can remember that, you know, they're probably playing a 12 or 13 year old game and my son's a kid who can, you know, he can shoot the ball hard and he takes a bad shot. And I can just hear the coach yelling at him for the sideline, Mark, that's a terrible shot. And one of the other parents looks at me like, I can't believe he just said it was a terrible shot. And I was like, it was a terrible shot. Like he shouldn't have shot that like that. That was just the coach delivering a moment of honesty, like, like a bad, that's bad shot selection. Don't, we're not, we don't want that shot. We would like you to be, you know, but the same coach, yeah, I assume we'll, and, we'll tell him when it's a good shot. We'll tell him why. Yep. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and you have to be ready. The other thing, and this is probably the biggest thing, is um, multiple sports. Do not get sucked into it. Again, this is it's like the thing we talked about strength training in the beginning. But single sport specialization for children is so incredibly illogical, yet we continue to do it. Because, and I always say this as an adult, for you to be great, you know, Jeff, the great owner of his fitness business, you need to really focus on your fitness business, right? But for a kid to be really great at hockey, I think the broader the sampling is in the beginning, the better chances that that kid becomes great. Because now you're, you're literally laying an athletic base for this kid, whether it is basketball, whether it's playing hockey, whether it's playing soccer, whether it's, you know, doing a, you know, you know, judo or wrestling or things like that, all of those things are going to make that kid a better athlete and allow you at some point to specialize that kid and have them be successful. And I've been saying this forever and I've been providing people, you know, evidence of this forever. And people are always like, no, you know, that's not how you do it. You know, you just, you go all in. And, and I'm like, well, if you look at the all in theory, like the all in theory works in Canada because you don't have lots of options generally speaking, it's hockey or bust. You know, you don't have a robust football program. Basketball is slowly coming around in, you know, in Toronto, 
but is probably not big, um, you know, across the entire country. And it's like Brazilian soccer. Like you can't look at countries that have limited options and then use that evidentially as saying, well, this is evidence that this works. It's like, no, nah, it's just evidence that they don't, they generally don't try it any other way. Cause one of the things we've noticed is that again, the, the best hockey players in Canada also tended to be good look box lacrosse players if they played box lacrosse. Mm-hmm. If they didn't, then they weren't. But generally speaking, they were. And all of these things, um, I think, you know, when your kid gets to be 14 and shows an aptitude, go for it. That's what I did with my daughter. My daughter, it was clear. She was a scholarship ice hockey player. There was no way around it. And I made her play her last year of U15 soccer. And in like, I think U13, she finished swimming and diving and she literally became like, she learned to dive because they needed a diver and she was a little bit of a daredevil. But after that, we went all in with hockey, you know, from 14 on and it worked, but it does not work. If that, if I'd done that at seven, I don't believe she would have achieved the same thing. Yeah. I think, um, we have to kind of parse out there. There's a survivorship bias. If, if you throw a million bodies into it, you know, some of them are going to make it but we have to look at it statistically. Are kids going to, are, are they statistically going to be better off with, with more exposure, uh, broader exposure to sport, uh, physical literacy? I think that's, uh, that's what it's about. And, and if you're going to do something new and if you're going to do something creative, um, it's because you've had experiences that other people haven't had or you're connecting the dots between things that p- other people don't see as related. So I think that's the, you know, the biggest thing is get your kid exposed to a lot of things. Because the other thing is you don't know what they're good at. My son liked baseball better than lacrosse. We started exposing him to lacrosse and it was very obvious he was better at lacrosse than baseball. And we started to say to Mark, do you see? And he was like, I really like baseball. I like it. I'm a catcher. I like playing. We're like, no, we get it. But this, this seems to be where your aptitude lies. You know, we'd like you to maybe think about pursuing this a little bit more, you know, and he started to have some success and realize, yeah, I am. This is what I'm best at. Like with him, he loves ice hockey. But he knows if you ask him about ice hockey, he'd be like, I love hockey. I love hockey season. Um, I'm much better at lacrosse than I am in hockey. You know, he knows that like in a lacrosse game, he feels like I can go out and, you know, dominate the game in the last five minutes. In, in hockey, I don't do that. I can't do that. I'm not, I don't have that capability. And we wouldn't have known that had someone not said, why don't you take them to, you know, to try lacrosse. And we were just kind of thinking it's better for hockey than baseball. Like baseball, there's a lot of sitting around, not a lot of activity, you know, lacrosse will help him with hockey because he'll be running around more, you know, he'll be more active and we can get him involved in a more active sport. And then there's a, it has a, you know, a hand-eye coordination aspect to it as a shooting aspect, it has a scoring aspect, but we found for him the better pursuit just because we were trying to broaden his horizon. And how not how done, long did it take you to kind of, to see that? How much exposure to lacrosse? Lacrosse, it was almost immediate. He was way better than everybody else right away. Like you looked at it and thought, it was almost like a kid who can play baseball. Cause again, lacrosse is just catching with, you know, the glove is on the end of a stick. And a kid that can play hockey, you know, understands like goals and dodging and, you know, where people are. Some, some of those kids immediately adapt to lacrosse very rapidly and you look and think, okay, this kid, he gets it. He understands it's kind of the same, the same idea. You know, I, I'm going to draw somebody to me and I'm going to make a pass or, you know, whatever it is. But yeah, it was very rapid. Like, okay, he's, he's better at, like it, it was obvious 
that he was better at that than anything he had tried at that stage to the point that he wanted to quit. Cause he was like, these other kids are dad. He's like, this is so bad. These other kids are terrible. You know, they can't catch, they can't throw this. We were saved by, we have in our, what they call a town select program. So town select is basically, they take the best kids at each age group and they have them practice once a week together. And the, the guy that I spoke about, the coach had said, Hey, bring him to the select practice. He'll like it more. Cause I was like, he does, he hates lacrosse. He said, it's practice is so boring. You know, no one can catch the balls always on the ground. And he went to the town select practice. He came home. He was like, dad, everybody on town select can catch and throw. He was like, we had like a real practice. He said, mm. you know, we, we, you know, I threw the ball to somebody and they caught it and they shot it in the goal and they passed it back to me and I caught it and I shot it in the goal. He was like, you know, in the, in the regular town games where we had, you know, spread, you know, 60 kids across five teams or whatever it was, you might have one other kid on your team who could, you know, really catch and throw and really understand the game. You know, this is when they were, they were 12, whatever, you know, 10, 11, I don't know what they were, but he was kind of saved by at that point, finding the right mix for him. So, yeah. And it doesn't even sound like it, it was so much that it was more advanced. It was just more fun for him. Right. Exactly. That was the whole thing. He was like, this isn't fun. Like baseball's fun. Everybody at baseball can catch. Mm-hmm. That was his, you know, he's like lacrosse. Cause again, all these kids are picking up lacrosse. Most of them have never done it before. And you know, some of them again, not necessarily as athletic, but you know, I think the average kid, at least in America, probably grows up playing catch with his dad with a baseball glove. So you get more literacy sooner in baseball than you would like the average kid does not grow up with a lacrosse stick in his hands, you know, playing catch with his dad out in the yard or shooting on a, you know, a bounce back or shooting at a net. So, um, but All right. that's, that's sample and figure it out. Uh, it's, Really nice to catch up with you. I, you know, it, it's kind of funny often in, in male relationships. Um, yeah, we're, we're, we're tight. I mean, we haven't spoken in a decade, but we're tight. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, it's nice to, it's nice to see you. Nice to talk to you. Well, it's nice to talk to you too. I always think I'm very proud of our sort of alumni group. You know, when I look around and see the people that have come through the mentorship program and how good people are doing, like it was weird. We drew a really good crew in early. Mm-hmm of people. And then I think everybody else saw like the mentorship idea and saw some of the things. And so it got very competitive Mm -hmm. and we actually abandoned it because we just weren't filling them up. Whereas in the beginning, you know, we, you know, we had some freaking star studded groups, you know, when you look at some of the pictures, it's like, wow. And most of those people are still in the industry and still really thriving wherever they are. Like those people that were in those early probably, you know, whatever, five, six, seven, eight groups that we had. So it was, yeah. it's good to see people still out and doing good things. I think you drew in a really sort of uh, process oriented group of people. Um, and for me, that's, you know, that's what I connected with. I never felt like I had to agree with you on anything. Uh, I just had to think about it. And that's, that's what you want. I mean, that's what you're hoping is that you're encouraging people to think think about this. This is, I've thought about this. This is what I think based on my study. I would like you to think about it and see, maybe you come to the same conclusion. Maybe you come to a dissimilar conclusion. I don't know, but does I saw, it? I saw this meme the other day, if you've seen this and maybe you saw this one, it's uh, the meme itself has a, it's a bottle, a uh, pill bottle. It says hard to swallow pills. And the caption was Mike Boyle was right all along.
That was, that was, you know, it's really funny. So that's Mladen Jovanovic. Mm-hmm. And Mladen was a kid that we actually, we went so far as to tell him we were sending him home. He had come from Serbia to be an intern. And he just, you know, he was a meathead. And he did not want to listen. And, you know, we'd look at him and he'd be over in the corner doing back squats or doing, you know, whatever it was that he wanted to do. And after about two weeks, we went to him and we were like, okay, this isn't working. You know, you're going to have to figure out how to get home. And he was like, well, what are you talking about? We're like, well, we've been talking to you for two weeks about, you know, we, cause our thing is about buy-in, you know, I don't care. I always tell everybody, you know, in the, in the internship wise, when you're done, you don't ever have to train this way again. While you're here, this is how you're going to train. You're going to live this process and see how it works. And then at the end of eight weeks, you're going to reject it entirely and go do something else. And he snapped right to that. And he was like, oh, wait a second. I'm, I'm not going home. I don't want this to happen. Because there's all these guys now like that were the sort of, you know, go heavier, go home. And, you know, Mike Boyle, all he's worried about is people not getting hurt. All he's worried about is training, being safe. You know, he's just, you know, he's just not like, you know, he's not a, a man's man kind of guy. And then, of course, they go and they end up in a team setting or they end up working with someone who makes a lot of money. And suddenly you realize, oh, I really have to be worried about this person getting hurt. You know, I'm not. I'm not training myself. I'm not training a bunch of people who, uh, you know, are going to be accepting of injury. And that's one of the things I learned in the pro sports world. Excuse me, I'm going to sneeze. But um, is that, you know, people didn't want to be hurt. They didn't want to be sore. They wanted to play the game. You know, like I'm going to play, you know, guys in the NHL, like I got to play 82 games plus playoffs. I want to do the least amount of work I can possibly do outside of the games. And I had to figure out what that was. And that mm-hmm. leads you down different paths. Um, then, you know, I'm a gym rat and I go to the gym two hours a day, five days a week and train myself. And I, and I look great. You know, that's, that's the average person in our field. I train myself and look at me. And you're like, yeah, what does that have to do with anything that we're doing? Okay, you train yourself and you look good. Awesome. Now try that with somebody else who doesn't really give a shit. And or makes $10 million and is very motivated to make another $10 million, but isn't so it isn't into strength training the way that you are like, go train that person. And then we'll see how that part goes. For you. Uh, thanks a lot. Pleasure. That's why I did this. I just wanted to catch up with you. So uh, if you get some good content out of it, awesome. If you don't, that's also awesome, but at least I got <laughs> to kind of say hello and reconnect. Uh, that is Mike Boyle for you. He did what he set out to do. And what I do with it is really entirely my problem. Um, you know, this was a longer episode, but I, I just enjoy speaking uh, with Mike so much. And we had a lot to catch up on. It's been a long time. Um, you ever get a compliment that you just kind of like, you want to put in a heart-shaped locket and just wear next to your chest for the rest of your life. I got one of those once, and it wasn't even from Mike. It was from a physiotherapist who um, who was working out of his space at the time, and we were, we were driving somewhere. I was down uh, near Boston for a visit, and uh, we were troubleshooting. We were, I don't know, we were, we were figuring something out, and he goes, hey, you're what Mike would call a good thinker. <laughs> And I was like, yeah, that's what, that's what I aspire to be. And, and, you know, if that message wasn't abundantly clear, that's what Mike is, is asking me, asking you, asking all of us to do is not, 
um, pretend like we have all the answers or that we're, you know, passing down the gospel truth. It's really just to interrogate what we know and not do things simply because they're the way that they've always been done. And it's his philosophy and thought process that has shaped um, a lot of my career. Um, you know, and, and not in any, any direct heavy handed way, just in terms of encouraging me to continue, um, exploring this and kind of finding my version of, um, of what makes sense and what stacks up. So big thanks to Mike Boyle for joining us today. Uh, thanks to the Unlearning Network, to our sponsor, Othership. Thanks to you for hanging out with us. See you soon.